Well, we've got this chapter 1 Corinthians 14 that's talking about the gift of speaking in tongues and the situation as it was there in Corinth. And we can, of course, wonder how relevant all this is for us today. And so as we have to, really, with all these uh, sort of chapters here in Corinthians, we've got to try to make a fair sort of effort to discern what was really going on but to then extract some principles which are relevant for our lives and the context in which we live. Now, we'll start off with, let's think about this speaking in tongues. What was it? Was it mumbo-jumbo, or was it speaking in a language that could be understood? Well, in Acts 2, I think we have the answer to that, that they spoke in tongues, and everybody was amazed because they heard each man uh, in the audience heard the, uh, the message in his own dialectos, it, uh, it even says, um, in which he was born. So very clearly in Acts 2, the gift of speaking in, foreign, in, in tongues was not mumbo-jumbo, it was speaking in intelligible language which could be understood in human languages. And the idea that actually it's the mumbo-jumbo done by Pentecostals, I'm afraid I, I cannot accept, if you actually record what they say, um, it's clear that the same old words or noises, let's say, are being repeated um, many times over, and that the total number of noises or supposed words is uh, very, very small. It's not the syntax that you would expect to be attached to uh, language that can be understood. And I've had a fair bit of experience with Pentecostals and I, for one, listening to people, quote, praying in tongues, uh, speaking in tongues or whatever, in terms of mumbo-jumbo, as I call it, uh, I certainly don't think, wow, these guys must be of God. And yet the idea of speaking in tongues in Acts 2 was clearly to spread the gospel in people's native language. And yet that view, which I think is pretty solid there, in the taught pretty solidly in Acts 2, that would appear to be contradicted by this chapter here in 1 Corinthians 14. Although, let's just notice what he says about tongues in verse 22. Tongues, or languages, are for a sign not to them that believe. This is not something that's used to upbuild individual believers, but to them that believe not. And he seems to confirm the idea that it is foreign languages, as in human languages, in verse 21, when he he quotes there from the Old Testament, with men of other tongues, and by the lips of strangers, I'm reading from the RV, will I speak unto this people. And that is clearly in its context there in Isaiah 28, is talking about how the Babylonians or the Assyrians were going to come and uh, dominate Israel and they would be people of another tongue, another language, a language which was strange to, to the people of Judah. But all the same, it was a language. It was unknown to the people of Judah, but it was a, a human language. So then, what's going on here in Corinth? When he says in verse 2, he that speaks in a, <clears throat> in a tongue, and the word unknown, which the AV puts in there, is uh, not in the original, he that speaks in a tongue speaks not unto men but unto God, because no one understands him. That, I think, is a description of the situation that was going on there in Corinth. 
He's not saying this is what speaking in tongues is really all about. He's saying this is what's going on uh, in Corinth. And so he's trying to control the situation. He's trying to pull the whole thing into line a bit. And he says things like, if you're not going to speak with an interpreter, then don't speak at all. Now, the idea of an interpreter is, uh, as I see it, to interpret from one language to, to another. So he's saying that if you're just going to use these gifts to just, uh, just talk in any old language that the other guy doesn't understand, well, this is pointless. What would this profit? Uh, and he, he, his whole theme here is think about others and not about yourself. And so he, he's, he says in verse 18, I speak with tongues more than all of you, and I assume that was because Paul had travelled and preached to more language groups than any of they, them had in Corinth. But, he says, in the church I'd rather speak five words that can be understood, so that I might teach others, than 10,000 words in, a, in an unknown language, in a language that you don't understand. Если, например, я начинал бы говорить на русском, я уверен, что большинство думали бы, что это вообще бесполезно. Если я говорил, говорил 10-20 минут, все думали, что это вообще бесполезно здесь. If I was to do the rest of this talk in, let's say, in, in Russian, most of you would probably be thinking, this is a complete waste of time. Get off. Shut up. Tell us five words that we understand, rather than going on all those thousands of words that we don't understand. That's, of course, logical and obvious. They had these gifts, and they were, as it were, showing them off. Hey, I can speak in, uh, whatever, Estonian. Wow, let me just go on for, for half an hour in Estonian. And Paul's saying, look, what's the point, guys? That's just a completely pointless showing off that you've got a spirit gift. And so he says that uh, really you only need two or three people to, to speak in tongues during a church service. And that makes sense because let's take Corinth there. Yes, it could have been that there was someone there who genuinely didn't know Greek uh, or whatever language they spoke. Uh, and yes, yet they needed to uh, do the service in two languages. Uh, possibly there could be someone else who didn't know that other language they were using, or, or Greek, or whatever, and yes, you might need to talk also in that person's language. But it's unlikely you're going to have three exclusive language groups who don't understand each other in your church service there in Corinth. Now, my point uh, is that there in Corinth, God did not say, and Paul did not say, look, you're so immature, you don't deserve to have these gifts, I'm taking them away. You're just misusing them, you're not using them for anything profitable or, or you know, purposeful, so that's the end of that. Now just, just remember what was going on there in Corinth. We saw when we started chapters 5 and 6 that there was this uh, male prostitute, it seems, in the ecclesia, and that their breaking of bread meetings were turning into the sort of symposia which they were used to having in Corinth, where a group of largely men got together and uh, united by a common interest, it might have been in a trade guild or uh, worshipping a particular god, they heard an address from somebody, a lecture given about something of common interest, 
and then they drunk a libation, a, a, a cup of wine or several cups of wine, uh, in honour of the uh, the god, uh, who was the patron of their meeting. And uh, yet they then started drinking more and more, and typically these things ended up in, in an orgy, uh, with plenty of drinking and uh, male and female prostitutes hanging around. And it seems, sadly, from 1 Corinthians 11, that that is how the breaking of bread meeting had ended up. And then you come to chapter 15, and he's saying, look, you don't even believe in the resurrection of Jesus, some of you, nor in the resurrection when Jesus comes back. You've lost the plot. And it's a pretty sad situation there in Corinth. But God was still working with them. And they still had the ability to, for example, to speak in other languages. That just shows, I think, the huge patience of God. I think generally we tend to be very intolerant. Someone just uh, misses the mark by, uh, by a few millimeters or centimeters or whatever in terms of doctrine, in terms of understanding, in terms of behavior, and that's it. Get out. And if they don't get out and other people will fellowship them, when then those other people can get out as well. And this is what has destroyed the body of Christ in our time. And yet, you see here the huge tolerance of God and of Paul. And even here, um, Paul is very gentle with them. He's not saying, well, okay, look, that's the end of it. Uh, Stop doing this uh, completely. He sort of says, well, okay, if this is how you want to to go on, well, okay, have uh, someone interpreting um, and, and keep on thinking about how you're going to profit other people. And don't do things which are just for your spiritual indulgement that don't profit other people. And he holds before them his ideal of what he thought church meetings should really be about. He says, uh, verse 22, focus on prophesying, um, because teaching, because that's what's going to help people. And he said, look, you know, if an unbeliever walks into your church and you're all talking in a whole load of different languages all at the same time, the guy is just going to shake his head and walk out and think it's all a load of confusion and idiocy and madness. But what should happen is that you are preaching to that guy and he says that this uh, person who comes in, verse 24, is convicted would be convicted by all of you. And the secrets of his heart will be made manifest, and so falling down on his face he will worship God and report that God is indeed among you. And I wonder if Paul has really in mind the Lord's teaching in John 17, where he says that by our unity we will convert the world. So this is Paul's idea, I think, that an unbeliever walks in and because of the word that is preached to him or her he's convicted of his sin and he recognizes that God really is in this community that I have just walked into and so uh, Paul incidentally seems to recognize there that conversion can be pretty quick um, but that's uh, just in passing that, again, you know, I started off by saying that we, we are to try to take the essence of Paul's uh, message here and, and apply it in our own lives. 
we as the body of believers, by our behaviour to each other and by our collective preaching of the word, we really should be enough to really persuade people that God is truly amongst us. Whereas if people just come into a community, a church or whatever, and see everybody on their own agenda, they're just going to walk out. And that's what was happening in, in Corinth. And really this is the challenge, that we as a community are to be the light of the world. And when individuals who believe in Jesus come together, that should be a very, very powerful and convicting light to those who are unbelievers who, as it were, stumble across us, as he seems to imply here. And so God was willing, and because he was inspiring Paul with this uh, line that he takes here, God was willing, I think, to uh, go along with an awful lot. And I think you see that in verse 39, sorry, 38. When having said all this about the uh, abuse of tongues that was going on, and he's trying to sort of pull them in line a bit, he says, look, if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. He doesn't say, look, if anyone doesn't accept all this, well, chuck him out of the church, and if you don't chuck those people out of the church, I'm chucking you out. He just says, look, if people are going to be ignorant, let them be ignorant. And the fact that he does not actually threaten any specific sanction, I think is really, really significant. God thirsts for relationship with his people. Let's face it, the vast majority of the inhabitants of this planet at any one time in history have not been his people, through their own choice or their own ignorance or whatever. But for whatever reason, they have not been his people. And he has always worked with a minority. And we are that minority. When Israel wanted to have a human king, you know, God was upset and sad, and he said, but, you know, you're rejecting me. But, okay, you want a human king, have one, and God worked through that human kingship. The same with a temple. We want a temple. Well, David said, you want to build a temple? No, that's not my intention. I never asked for a temple. I always wanted to live in a tent. Oh, but we want a temple. Just like all the other nations, basically, who had their cult and their shrine to their God and the rest of it. Uh, and so, okay, God allowed that to happen, and he dwelt in the temple. And he uh, even worked through that system. I mean, with the whole thing of kingship, he, he says in the prophets that he gave them a king in his anger and took him away in his wrath, that God still worked with them. He gave them a king. He worked through the uh, the family of, uh, of David initially, um, and they were kings on God's behalf over that nation. And so God is prepared to make huge concessions to human weakness because he wants and thirsts for relationship with us. Now, we should not think, oh, well, that's all right, God's kind of not that serious about it all. We can uh, breathe a sigh of relief and just get on and do our own thing, and that will kind of be fine with God in the end. It's not like that at all. It should, in fact, inspire us, I think, the other way, that we want to rise up as far as we can into relationship with him. However could we want to be minimalists, just doing the minimum we can that we can kind of get away with, uh, no, we don't want to be like that. We want to serve him on the highest level. The fact there are these different levels um, of serving God, 
I don't think that that drags us down to the lowest level, but instead I think it inspires us. And if God was simply the God of Islam, submission is the law, keep it, and if you don't keep it, you're out, um, then it seems to me that it would be somewhat different. If I can uh, keep that commandment, I'm good. Okay. But the fact there's this range of responses that God ultimately is willing to accept, I think that that inspires us. And uh, we talked about this, uh, in, we talked about chapter 7, about the different things that God will accept within married life. Um, that it inspires you to rise up, not just leading you to shrug your shoulders and say, okay, yeah, well, God's kind of soft-touchy, let me get away with it. Not at all. I don't think that's how it works to anyone who has a heart for God. Now, he talks here about how you can actually choose to have another gift apart from that which you've got. They were all into this speaking in tongues, this speaking in foreign languages, and he's saying, look, that's not really a, a, a particularly helpful gift um, within the church. The best thing is to prophesy, and he, he says, seek to prophesy, all the way through this chapter, really. He, he's saying, look, seek after, prophesy, uh, after prophecy. He says, verse 39, covet or desire uh, to prophesy. And yet, in chapter 12, you could read him as saying that, well, God has distributed within the church different gifts. One guy's got the gift of tongues, other guy's got the gift of prophecy, and kind of that's that. And you've sort of got the same implication in Ephesians 4. And you've also got the parables where Jesus talks about talents and, and things that he's given to each person, that each person gets a, a different kind of gift. And yet here he seems to be saying that you can have one gift and yet seek another one, even a better one. Now, those parables about being given different gifts, I think in the first century context they would have pretty obviously applied to the spirit gifts, and they were to, to trade them, to use them for God's glory and not for their own enjoyment, uh, let alone for the extension of human pride. And so, in all that, I think you see the way that God is uh, open to working with us in a very open-ended way. He may give you a gift in one way, in one aspect, but you can desire to have an even more significant role uh, to play. And why do you desire that? Because you want to serve him as hard as you can on the highest level that you can. So he's saying, okay, if you've got the gift of speaking in a foreign language, well look, why don't you desire instead to prophesy? Get the gift of prophecy, that's a much better gift, because you can actually do far more with it. You can, uh, you, you can build up the church, um, rather than just talk uh, to the occasional person you meet in your town who may not know your language. And so, I find that, um, a, a, well, a ladder really with which to reach the stars, as it were, that we, we should be so fired up by spiritual ambition that we actually consider asking God to give us some level of gift or ability so that we might serve him, so that we might build up the body of Jesus, 
um, because that is our ambition. Now, once you start a reason like that in your life, all your priorities change. The number one thing is no longer getting on in your career. The number one thing is no longer getting qualified in this or that or the other and then getting that extra qualification and then getting that bigger house uh, or that bigger apartment or that car or then that better car or all the sort of things that uh, most people on this earth uh, spend their time thinking about and that is really their ambition. How pathetically low those ambitions are when you compare them to the kind of ambition that we're meeting here. The ambition to serve God and to work out your place in his purpose on a, a higher level, a, 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 a wider level, let's say, than what you have been doing at the moment. Now that is the real ambition. That's a whole different set of values. And all those other things, what job you do, what career you've got, uh, where you live, etc., all that stuff, and I'm not saying that those things are irrelevant of themselves, but all those things have become, in a sense, well, laughably irrelevant. How you live physically is, is one thing. Uh, but the main... I keep wanting to use the word stremlinia, it's a Russian word for... What you um, are ambitious for, what you have set your sights upon, those things are so uh, so far higher than anything in our secular lives that secular life just becomes relatively unimportant. And of course, this is how we will eternally live, because we won't eternally, forever and ever and ever, be thinking about our jobs and our careers and progressing in your career and all the rest of it and money and houses and nice things to eat and uh, nice cars to drive and the rest of it all those things just won't be on the agenda forever and ever and ever we will not be into any of those things but we will be into God's service and really we are to live the spirit of the kingdom life right now in that sense, as Jesus said, we have eternal life. We, it's not that we're not going to die. He meant, I think, that we can live the kind of life which we will eternally live right now.